This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is Dale Borglum Ramdave at the Healing at the Edge podcast, and today... As they say, it is my very great pleasure to have a guest, Christiana Wolf, who is both a PhD and a medical doctor. She is from Germany, where she was an oncological gynecologist and has since, when after moving to America, become a Dharma teacher in the Vipassana tradition, uh, based in Southern California right now. She's just wrote a book that came out that is called Outsmart Your Pain, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion to Help You Leave Chronic Pain Behind. And it's a very sweet little book. I've been trying to write a book for 25 years, and I always make it so complicated that I never get it done. And Christiana has written an incredibly accessible and available book that has a lot of wonderful meditations and attitudes for dealing with pain. As you may know that I worked with Stephen Levine a long time ago, and he developed these pain meditations. And uh, I think that was one of the most brilliant things he did. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is working with pain. Welcome, Christiana. I'm so glad to be with you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, I used to be a mathematician, just the way Christiana used to be an oncological gynecologist. And one of the first things I saw in her book was an equation that she admitted to me as we were talking before we turned the microphone on that she stole from Shinzen Young, I believe, that suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. Yeah. And do you want to talk at all about that? Yeah. I mean, that is, for me, that was like when I first came across that from Shinzen Yang, that just made so much sense to me to put like a very complicated concept into like very simple terms. And I've been teaching that ever since. And because you can really like blow people's mind with that. Because so the way that I talk about that is so usually we think that, um, um, pain and suffering are the same. And here we are like putting it into something that it says, no, suffering is actually has something added to it. 
And we always think that the pain is the problem. If we only had no pain, then our, we wouldn't suffer. The problem is that pain, having a human body, having a human heart is just a given or a constant. And so that is something we have to learn how to live with. But everybody has made the experience that if we have pain and we struggle with it, so we resist the pain, what happens to suffering goes up. And we could also say like if there's resistance or if there's worrying, if I worry about this, the suffering goes up. And so we can play with this. And then I have in a group of people, I say like, raise your hand if that's your experience and all hands go up. You hate your pain. You worry about it. You suffer more. You don't worry about it so much. You don't resist it for whatever reason in that moment, the suffering goes down. And then I kind of play with that. Just you're being a mathematician, you'll appreciate that and say, so, so what if there's zero resistance? <laughs> you can have a lot of pain and there's no suffering. <laughs> there's no suffering. And people go like, wait, what? <laughs> and then we're actually, we're actually, um, looking for instances in people's lives where they say, oh, yeah, there was pain, but there was no suffering. Right. And for example, people will say, like sometimes women will say that giving birth, there was pain, but there was no suffering. Right. Or people say, well, when I, I don't know, like I do a hard workout and my muscles are sore, there's pain, but there isn't really suffering. Right. And so it's it's quite interesting to write to break open this whole concept that we have about pain with that. So there's a famous saying, pain is mandatory, suffering is optional. I'm sure you've heard that. Yes. And yeah. uh, that's really pretty much exactly what you're saying. I uh, one of my first main meditation teachers was Goenka. Uh-huh. And he would uh, that was a lot about being mindful of your sensations. And he would do this thing called the vow hour, where you said I, you took a vow not to move for 60 minutes, which after 40 minutes became not screaming meditation for me. <laughs> it was like <laughs> there's so much pain in my body. Yeah. Yeah. But I really learned that I could just sit with the pain and relax. And just recently, I went to the dentist and my dentist said, well, you got some decay under one of your fillings. We're going to have to take the filling out and drill on a live nerve. So we're going to give you a shot. I said, I don't want a shot. She said, well, it's going to hurt a lot. I said, I know. I'll just relax. It'll be okay. She said, no, really? I said, I don't want a shot. She called in her husband, who was a bigger dentist. And he <laughs> said, you got to take the shot. I said, I'm not going to have the shot. And it really hurt for about 60 or 90 seconds. I just relaxed. The pain was there. I wasn't suffering. And it was all done. I didn't have those weird chemicals in my oh, body. I wow. wasn't talking funny for the rest of the afternoon. Wow. And that's that's strong practice right there. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that anybody else do that, but <laughs> when you're dying, there might be a lot of pain. Yes. And if you're suffering, if you're resisting the pain, it will really cut into the profound spiritual opportunity that dying can present. Yes. I've been around people, Cristiano, who have been writhing in bed. They're in so much pain. They have tumors pushing on organs mm. or inside mm. of bones. And I say, how are you? They say, I've never felt better in my life. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. they were not identifying with the body. Yes. So yeah. Stephen Levine wrote the book, Who Dies? Yes. The body dies. Right. Do you die? Yeah. So that so for many people, for me, I'm a bad interviewer. I'm doing all the talking here. <laughs> <laughs> but for many people, 
the relationship with the body is the way to really begin to understand how suffering arises. Yes, yes. Yeah, and that is definitely my experience too. So as I said, so I, um, being a gynecologist and then working in oncology was really exactly what you're talking about to just be confronted a lot with. So how do people make sense of or not make sense of having a diagnosis that uh, potentially could lead to their death? And to really see from a physician's uh, perspective on how differently people deal with that. And how some people really take that as an opportunity. And of course, like from who they are, maybe to start with, or I mean, who knows, um, into like saying, I'll grow from this. This is an opportunity and other people just fight it to the end. And but in my experience, it's really um, pushes us back to this weird relationship that we have in our culture with our bodies Right, so, that so many of us have a kind of a um, mechanical relationship with the body. So it's like a car, right? So and if it breaks down, I bring it to the mechanic, which is called the doctor. And if I could, I would just say like, okay, I'll leave it here and please fix it, and I'll get it back next Wednesday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's just not how it works. And to really become more and um, so. Um, my PhD is actually in psychosomatic medicine and it's something I've always been like very, very interested in. So how does the mind influence the body and the other way around really with this understanding that ultimately there is no separation? So I had a point there and it just, it disappeared when you kept talking. Uh, So To me, there's there's pain and there's fear of pain. And very often what's being treated by the medical community is the fear of pain. Uh, yes. So when I ran this place called the Dying Center, we used meditation for fear of pain and medication for the amount of pain that still remained. And there are all these studies, uh, like Stan Groff, for instance, was giving LSD to terminal cancer patients, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, terminal cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And many of them had a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and many of them found out that they were in the study to see if psychedelics could help deal with fear of death. But what they found out was that many of these people had a significant decrease in their need for analgesic medication after these guided psychedelic sessions, even though LSD has absolutely no analgesic properties at all. Yeah. But if I think that I'm five inches, eight and weigh 170 pounds and there's X amount of pain bouncing around inside of me, that could be a really big problem. But if I have this experience that I'm the whole universe, that <laughs> same kind of same amount of pain can be bouncing around inside. And well, that's just that's just pain. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something and um, psychedelic experiences might not be for everybody, although we're hoping, of course, that it really and it looks like it, that it is really making its way back into a really um, helpful therapeutic um, environment. Um, But what you're describing, I mean, this just making space for the pain is also something that we really practice with or um, what I'm trying to help people see that when they have pain in the body, they can so either zoom in or zoom out. 
Yeah. So one thing is to actually pay attention to the physical sensation in the moment. And it's really interesting because there is some newer research that shows that when we have chronic pain, we actually stop really feeling the pain. So really the interoception from what does this, what's the sensation in this moment? And we make assumptions based on what it was there before or what it feels like when it's really bad. And to the point where um, they can show you that in an MRI, that something that is responsible for the, the interoception shrinks with people with chronic pain, which I find is super fascinating. Huh. And, and, and so what you're saying is the fear of pain is like a big problem is because that is what is co-arising, right? And the more often I've had that often, the bigger the fear is. And so how to work with that is really important. And so to, that is kind of the zooming in. Zooming in on the sensations. On the sensations. Instead of, so what people will often say with chronic pain is they say the pain is killing me or it's terrible. That's actually not a sensation. So when you ask somebody, how's the pain? How does it feel like? And it says like, oh, it's terrible. Terrible is not a sensation. It's an emotion. Yeah. It's an yeah, emotional reaction. It's, yeah, it's a reaction or it's an interpretation. Right. But it doesn't tell me what is that? Is that, is that hot or is that tight? Is that dense? Is that liquid? Is that how big is that? It doesn't tell me anything. So if you want to use any of the actual descriptors of a sensation, you have to check in right now. And then what you what people often start to see is like, oh, it's it changes. And then when it changes, it can also get less or it can not be there because it's, I mean, right, moment by moment. And so that is the one way. So we can zoom in. And then when you were saying like the whole universe, feeling like your whole universe, uh, or be you being the universe, then like the pain can feel insignificant. We can start that on a basis of saying like for most people, I mean, like, okay, if you have advanced cancer or if you're, the pain can be really feel like it's everywhere. But for most people, the pain is not everywhere. It just feels like it's everywhere. And so the zoom out can be, so how about your feet? Are your feet in pain right now? Are your earlobes in pain right now? How about your hands? And so that people like very similar, just get a sense of, oh yeah, there's pain and there are areas where there is no pain. And that can even be done within the, um, the boundaries of the body. And potentially people can go beyond that, but they don't have to. In my experience, I was struck by one of the stories in your book. You were working with a young woman, it seemed, who who uh, was really surprised when she when you guided her to notice that when you're being aware of pain, you're not in pain. There's awareness and there's pain. But when you're really in awareness, you're in awareness rather than in pain. Yes. Yeah. 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 Very powerful. Very powerful. And it's often really surprising of this is like, oh, I can be aware of, of experience really. And to see pain as an experience and the awareness of the experience or any experience is not the experience. How much do you see what you're saying about physical pain uh, being translated then in individual lives working with emotional pain? There's so 
so intertwined in my experience with chronic pain because what happens, of course, is now we have a history with this pain, like all the frustration and the mistakes and the what ifs and shouldn't haves, and they all bring up a lot of emotions. And then, of course, as we said, then there's the fear of the actual pain. So it it gets really enmeshed. So that is one thing that I see is just like having like something physically going on, physical chronic pain or chronic illness usually comes with quite a load of like emotional um, distress too. But then, then there's another thing of just to see that people who have a lot of emotional pain, that often also translates into higher levels of physical pain. Okay. Let me bring up a couple points, see if any of these you want to talk about. One is that I live in Marin, which is kind of the healing spiritual capital of the universe, at least in our minds. Maybe nobody else thinks it is. <laughs> but everybody in Marin is a healer of one sort or another, pretty much, right? A meditation teacher, Fe- yeah. Or a meditation teacher. When I lived in Santa Fe a long time ago, the joke was that everybody in Santa Fe is either a real estate agent or a healer. So in Marin, it's a meditation teacher or a healer, I guess. But uh, my sense is that that a lot of this holistic healing is still pushing away pain, mm-hmm. but with less toxic Mm-hmm. substances that they're using yes. herbs and and different things instead of uh ama prescribed medicine to, to deal with things but the the big hole in holistic medicine is there's still f- fear of death at the bottom of it all yes just as the way in regular medicine is that your experience yeah that is totally my experience and it is also my experience that uh, of course i mean people come because they want the pain to go away Right. Of course. I mean, no, nobody likes pain. So that's totally understandable. And so that can be a doorway into the practice. And I'd be curious to see what your experience is with that. Right. But the underlying idea is still like, I want this experience to be different that I'm having. Yeah. And with that, there is a subtle or not so subtle pushing away of how things are in this moment, Yeah. which often makes it worse or cements the experience. And that that is really hard for people to trust. Like we talked a little bit about trust before we came on to this um, talk and we can pick that back up. It's like, can I trust that this moment, to let that moment be as it is and let things unfold by themselves without the interfering? And how hard that is. And that is often the paradox. And I, I just briefly touch on that in the end, like the very end of my book, because it's such a controversial topic that I say, um, sometimes you truly have to let things be as they are yeah. for them to actually change and heal into what you want. But it cannot be like, a, oh, let me pretend I'm kind of okay with how things are. But it's a process of how to get there. So it's sort of the difference between letting go and letting be that very often I think people say, I'm going to use meditation to deal with my pain, but it's like, I'm trying to mindfulness it away. There's a kind of a a, a subtle shoving that is really defiling the practice in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's hard to really realize that you can just, 
I mean, to, to me, it's the basic paradox in spiritual life that we have to lean into suffering. Yes. Rather than, and there's so much conditioning individually yes. and collectively to get away yes. from suffering. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let me tell you about an experience I had. Uh, I was at a Vipassana, I mean, at a, yeah, at a Goenka Vipassana retreat after I came back to America. It was, it was uh, guided by a man named Robert Hover. And uh, I had a very strong practice. I had a lot of pain in my right knee, though, when I practiced these longer Goenka retreats. So it was toward the end of the retreat, I had very strong mindfulness and concentration. And I came into the interview and I, I said, how is your practice? It's really strong, uh, but I have a lot of pain in my right knee. And he said, well, would you like it to go away? And I said, yeah, I'd like it to go away. So he said, well, let's meditate. And very quickly, we both got into that very clear place. And he said, well, tell me what it feels like. And I said, well, there's this kind of ball of hot pain in my right knee. He said, well, is that connected to anything? And I said, yeah, I never noticed that. But there's a tendril going up to my right sit bone, my right buttock. And there's another ball of, it's kind of very similar, a ball up there in my right buttock. He said, well, is that connected to anything? And I said, yeah, I never noticed that either. It's connected to another ball over in the left buttock. He said, well, is that connected to anything. It's not that long a story. I said, no, it's not. That's the end. He said, well, okay, push the pain from the left buttock to the right buttock. And I did that. And he said, push it from the right buttock to the knee. And I did that. And then he says, push it out your foot. And I did. And it went away and it never came back. And I still, to this day, maybe you can tell me what happened. There. I mean, <laughs> what was, what was I holding on to? I mean, it, it, I always thought is because I was this kind of in this Danish body trying to sit in these Asian postures. <laughs> my <laughs> my knee didn't like it, but um, he just, we we just let it just completely disappeared. But th there was absolutely no resistance. I was not fighting the pain at all when I did this. I had mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. strong mindfulness mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of being at the retreat, mm -hmm. and it's just it just went right out of my body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have actually no idea what happened there. Like I'm thinking, is that placebo or because you were under the influence of the teacher plus Samadhi? So, but something powerful happened there for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it does go to show that pain is a little more interesting and, and complex than we think it is that, I mean, almost always pain is changing moment to moment to moment. It's not a monolithic lump. Yes, it's, absolutely. And, yeah. and, uh, to be able to be with the, the changing quality, to let the, the change arise in the spaciousness of, a, of an open mind is where healing happens. And uh, for me, I often work with dying people, as you know, and very often the entree where people get to trust me more is I come in the room and I say, I understand you're in pain. Would you like to not suffer so much? And Everybody says yes. Whereas if I come in the room and say, and I don't really know this person very well, I understand you're dying and you might be afraid you want to talk about your fear. People say, who are you? <laughs> Why would I want to tell you about my fear? But everybody wants to be in less pain pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, this like underlying fear of death, which is really like the ultimate not knowing, right? So we hate to not know and we hate to not be in control. And like death, it's just like like a, the epitome of both of that, really, right? Yeah. 
So there's been a recent study that shows that uh, mindful stress doesn't affect the body in the way that unmindful stress does. Mm-hmm. If if there was a drug that did for stress what mindfulness does, there would be people. Somebody would make millions of dollars, of course. But they did a they they did a study with thirty thousand people. First group high stress, no mindfulness. Second group ten thousand people high stress. They taught them mindfulness. You don't have to be afraid of your stress. Third group was control group high stress, medium stress, low stress. The first group died 48% more often than the other two groups. But the second group did better than the control group that even had people with low stress. So that it's not really the stress, just as it's really not the pain. No. It's the resistance. Yeah. I mean, in a way, stress is, is almost like it's very similar to pain in a certain way, I think. It is. Yeah, it is. And in particular, um, chronic pain is something, I mean, like people like always feel like um, insulted when the doctor says, well, it's in your head. But the fact is all pain is in our head because actually it's the brain that makes the pain, which people believe or a lot of people don't know. They think it's the body that makes the pain. Because we feel it or we project it into the body, but it's actually the interpretation of the brain that tells our system to make pain or what we perceive as pain or not. And so it's very different between acute pain and chronic pain. So in acute pain, it's very straightforward. We have a little injury, it hurts a little bit. We have a big injury, it hurts a lot. And it basically, it's the body's way to tell the brain, pay attention. And boy, do we pay attention to pain, right? Nothing gets our attention like pain does when we think about it. And it makes sense, right? Because that would, I mean, it's about keeping us safe. Right. And then with chronic pain, it gets a lot more complicated because our brain and this is why the book is called like outsmart your pain. It could be like outsmart your brain, actually. Our brain is trying to keep us safe. And so it tries to predict, right? So our brain is a fabulous predicting or prediction machine to say like, has this happened before? Have we been here before? Was that dangerous? What's that scary? And then tries to alert us to something. And unfortunately, what it does, it makes that louder and louder. So what we see is that people with chronic pain just um, get more and more sensitized. So they feel something as really painful, which before they wouldn't have, or somebody who hasn't had that experience, like just doesn't in the same way. And so what happens is like this automatic process that's happening, but it often makes things worse. Good intentions, but actually makes it worse. And, and that is where mindfulness and in particular also, of course, like self-compassion come in, like with what you were just saying about like, how can mindfulness mediate stress, right? It is like kind of a buffer between what comes in, like the stressor, what we perceive as being stressful, because we know stress is very subjective. Yeah. It's really in the eye of the beholder stress, right? And we can say like, so mindfulness is there and we just notice and we can kind of buffer that, then the effect on the body or on the system is very different. And so with chronic pain, how mindfulness helps it, it helps kind of like calm the brain down again. Like it's like this hyperactive, hyperprotective cycle 
that happens and mindfulness can help really like slow that down, calm that down so that the brain doesn't feel so um, triggered all the time about all kinds of things. And does compassion speed that up? That that Yes, movement? absolutely. Absolutely. And compassion is really this, um, this movement of um, just acknowledging that something is hard. And allowing ourselves to be human and not having to be perfect or getting it right or being so hard on ourselves. So there's just like a general softening towards ourselves. And then just also just saying like, it's like we have a human body, right? And this body is of the nature, right? The heavenly messengers of old age, <laughs> sickness and death, whether we like it or not, right? Another fucking so, growth opportunity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I have this uh, kind of joke that uh, th- this process I call the tantric three-step as opposed to the country two-step dance. <laughs> And the first step of the tantric three step is mindfulness. Can you be with what you're experiencing and completely let go of the narrative? In your book, Mm -hmm. you were talking about letting go of the past, letting go of the future, being with the sensations just the way they are. Can you, very often people aren't in their body. They have concepts of their body. Yes. It's my body. It's my elbow. It's it's my pain. Yeah. Uh, It's my uh, power, energy, whatever it might be. So the first step is, can we just completely let go of the narrative and be intimately, nakedly, directly with what it feels like to be right now, particularly somatically? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the second step, now there's, so, and there's all these studies that show that mindfulness leads to well-being. No big surprise there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then there are other studies just a few years ago that show if you add compassion, now there's two things to do. Mm-hmm. That's you're moving much more quickly into well-being so that I'm aware of what's going on and I soften my heart in relationship to it. I have have a tenderness. I have an openness rather than I'm feeling this. I don't like it. I'm feeling it. But you're you're saying, okay, I can even have a love relationship with this. I mean, a long time ago when I was teaching with Stephen and some of these new ideas about visualizations and things people were visualizing pac-man eating up tumor cells oh yeah i remember that yeah Yeah. Uh and instead we were talking about what if you could love the part of your body that might kill you what -hmm. if you had compassion for that your tumor yeah what if you had compassion for the part of you that's afraid of that part of your body yeah right so that this second stage is Opening with love to this part of yourself that you're really at war with, like be, beginning to end the internal civil war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the third stage of the tantric three step is there's a tantric relationship where the heart becomes open enough, spacious enough. You begin to see that it's all sacred. Yeah, it's all uh, it's all energy. Uh, it's all this Vajrayana relationship with with. Uh, it's all a reflection of God's face, if we can use the word God in this Buddhist discussion we're having. Yeah. Yeah, I very much relate to all of what you're saying. Um, and also, so one thing, and maybe would you say that like the the last step is, um, because where I was going with that is, so first we have mindfulness 
like a lot of research on that. And then like compassion became like the new it child of um, uh, <laughs> the science uh, movement. And now we're actually moving into equanimity, which is interesting. So we have now three of the four Brahma Viharas that we have been paying a lot of attention to. And so equanimity is a little bit like I was thinking with the Tantra when you said that, right? So equanimity is really like the way that I described that is to hold all of it at the same time. How is mindfulness one of the four Brahma Viharas, if I might interrupt? Sorry, it's not. No, no, that's it's actually not. But it's um, thank you for catching that. No, it's not. But um, meta, they started with meta practice. So they did do a lot of research on meta. So like we would have so basically mindfulness and then meta and then uh, compassion. And then we're jumping mudita, sympathetic joy. And we're now on to on to equanimity. But there is just something in the scientific community that people get really interested in. I'm getting a little lost. <laughs> <laughs> so my question, where I was going with this is, would you say that like this tantra, the, t- the your third step? Yeah. With a tantra where you open to everything, isn't that giving, isn't that giving you a sense of equanimity? It is. It is. I mean, and even beyond that, if we go back to compassion, Tibetans end up saying that some of them, that compassion is a mixture of sadness mm-hmm. and joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The joy that your heart is open, the mm-hmm. mudita aspect, and the sadness that people are suffering. We look around and there's COVID and there's Ukraine and there's mm-hmm. climate change and all these things happening and people are greatly suffering. But our heart is so open. There's this joy that goes beyond happiness and sadness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so it's already in there. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Because but, in a way, it's like you could say like all the Brahma Viharas, of course, they're doorways into the same room, right? And if we just keep practicing them, like they all will unfold. Well, so so Tantra, as you probably know, includes the wrathful deities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got over on my altar, there's Kali <laughs> and I've, my, my spiritual name that Maharaji gave me, Ramdev, is the name of Shiva. Oh, okay. Uh, it means Ram's Lord. Ram worships Shiva. Shiva worships Ram. So that that it takes a certain equanimity mm-hmm. to be able to see the divine in the wrathful. Yes. Or yes. M- maybe seeing the divine in the wrathful creates equanimity. Maybe it's the other way around or both ways at the same time. I don't know. But uh, this tantric level is what I'm kind of playing with a lot right now. And and basically, it's all energy. And in fact, if we really look at what what ancient tantric wisdom of Hinduism and Vajrayana Buddhism is saying, quantum mechanics is mathematically proved. Yes. That the Western model, on which the Western medical model is based, is backwards. Yes. That we're not individual perceiving devices, perceiving an an objective solid reality out there. Mm Mm-hmm. That there's one consciousness flowing through us creating reality. Yes. And to me, when I, I mean, it's like, it's a very mindy intellectual thing. But the more I kind of sit with that as a contemplation, it's very comforting and relaxing in a certain way. Yeah. And there's a lot of this stuff out there about abundance and prosperity consciousness. But all of that is driven with some greed. Not all of it, but a large part of it is driven by greed. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if if you really have this tantric understanding that it's all consciousness, that we're we're creating these bodies, we're, that it's not that the the brain creates the mind, but the mind creates the brain. Mm-hmm. That that consciousness is primary mm-hmm. and form is secondary. And there's the double slit experiment and all those kind of things in quantum mechanics that show you can't have form without consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way that I try to teach about that, where like, so I'm not a tantric teacher, but I think we're probably talking about a similar experience is I talk about the paradox and like leaning into the paradox of like opposing views can be both right. Right. And this is like what I'm hearing of like the the wrathful deities or the destructors and the creators. Uh They need to go together. Or like we could say the yin and yang, which have both of the other in it. Right. So I think that's just a very like ancient um, realization that we probably come to as we're really sinking deeper into really grappling with why are things the way they are or the way that they appear or are they really the way that they appear? And as we do this, and I notice that in my own practice, it feels like the deeper I go, the more okay things become. And okay is a tricky term here. But I think that's what you're pointing to. Yeah. I'm not saying that what's happening in the world is okay. And at times when I'm thinking, so how can we move on? Like where things are often so difficult, but yet at the same time, so beautiful is really, we have to make ourselves bigger so that it can contain all of that, which I think that is also what you were talking about earlier when you were talking about Stan Groff and the right. really the psychedelic experiences, which we know we can also have very similar experiences or the same in in deep meditations or in life situations that kind of throw us to the edge, which dying is one of them, right? I completely agree. And I'd, I'd like to say that I... Uh, that if one goes deep enough into mindfulness, all this other stuff arises by itself. I'm not saying you have to mm-hmm. yes. start studying Tantra and, and all of that. That if you go deeply enough into mindfulness, then all, all else will arise. Like the way somebody asked Deepama a question about the difference between awareness and metta. And she said, well, where I'm sitting, they're the same thing. I mean, her practice was so deep that if you're aware yes. of something, of course you love it. And if you're loving something, of course you're going to be aware of it. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. One other thing I, I would like to explore with you is is grief. Uh, you talked how pain can lead to grief. And my my experience is that the human condition is that everybody is walking around with some background grief that they assume is the human condition that kind of veils our heart and our love. Uh, Rumi has this wonderful quote, grief is the garden of compassion, Mm. Uh, that compassion grows out of this garden of being able to be with our grief. And I talk about conscious grief work of Mm. being with the grief, very similarly to the way you're talking about being with physical pain. But, that it's not just grief because I'm feeling this pain in my body, but that's uncovering all the grief Mm -hmm. and grief. Isn't just sadness. It's the anger. It's the, it's the frustration. It's any emotions arising out of being identified with separateness. Grief is, is the response to separateness. Whereas compassion is being connected 
so that that whether it's working with pain or grief, uh, it's this movement of connecting with our uh, immediate experience. But I think grief is a little more emotionally charged for people because there's because the stories are so strong. Yeah. Uh, I I hiked this morning with somebody whose mother died last night. Right. Yeah. As, I, as yeah. I told you before, she was 100 yeah. years old and they were waiting for her to die. It was not really a sad thing, but it was just, I mean, it's not every day you go for a hike with somebody whose mother died last night. Right. right. And how his heart was ripped open. We were just looking at the mountains as we were hiking and how, how, how tender hearted he was. So what is your experience with the interaction there with pain and grief? Yeah, I mean, the particular way that I wrote about it in the book, which I find is helpful or like working with people with chronic pain is that they, the grief is there. And here in particular, it's the grief about the identity or identities that we have lost or we fear we have lost through the pain or through the illness, right? So it's like, Maybe I was the person who could do all these things and now I can't anymore. So that is a big loss and that there's a lot of grief around that. And then so I think two things in this context come together. It's like first, um, we fear grief as an emotion because it can take us so over and it can take us so apart, right? So like grief has the, or the nature of grief is often these waves I mean, there are all kinds of, but like these, like, especially as like we're moving through a loss is like these huge waves that can really come out of nowhere, feel like they come out of nowhere, I feel fine. And then I totally feel not fine and I can't help myself. And so there's this fear, again, like fear of pain or a fear of grief. And then there's also like this kind of almost, um, I'm... Mm, can't think of the word right now, but there is like this magical thinking around if I let myself feel the grief, then I make the loss real. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that I encounter very often. It's just like, oh, if I acknowledge, right, that pain, that makes it real. And then it's really gone. So as long as I'm pretending, I still will be fine. And I might be fine, right? And so the way that we want to work with that is just, again, just raise awareness around what is that and what it means really is it's it's whatever I'm grieving has really mattered a lot to me or still matters a lot to me. So it's in a way, it's like love in action, right? So that we are honoring that grief, I feel has a lot to do with honoring and um, yeah, finding our way into that. And then just the fact that because we feel grief in this moment, just means we feel grief in this moment. It's just an emotion in the present moment that we can learn how to be with. And it doesn't mean whatever the grief is saying is real. So to come like from these two angles, I have found helpful working in this particular context with grief. And then it can, of course, go into much bigger ways in the way that you were just describing before. Beautiful. One final thing I'd love to explore with you is uh, conscious dying. Mm -hmm. I would imagine if you're working with people who have chronic pain, some of them are dying. They Mm -hmm. have organic disease that's causing chronic pain for one reason or another, tumor pain, something else. And have you found that in helping people work 
consciously with pain itself helps them work with dying more consciously. Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, my experience has been that people's approach to dying is just as widely varied as people's lives and lifestyles are. And some people just want to not feel anything. And they just want the pain to go away. And basically, that means not just the physical pain, but also the emotional pain. And they basically want to be knocked out, which is, I mean, I totally um, respect that. And that because I feel like if we've learned, I think, anything like from the whole hospice movement, right, of which you've been a big part is like, like we listen to what people, how people want to die. We're not making suggestions like we don't know better. It's their death. And so they they get to choose how to do that. And then there are really people for whom this, it can be like a huge cauldron really of transformation of just really, this is just like, like resting, but coming back to this idea of resting more in awareness instead of identifying with this body. Just saying like, this is a body and this is what happens to a body that is under, undergoing this process, which a lot of bodies do. Yeah. And so there can be and like um, this whole idea of so like, what's the difference between curing and healing? Yeah. So what I have really encountered time and time again is really this idea that people can feel really healed, meaning whole. Like I'm a whole person, even if I'm dying, even if this illness doesn't go away. And then there are people who are cured from the disease and they still really don't feel whole at all. Right. Yeah. The longer I've done this work, the less it is about helping people die well, but it's about helping people heal. Yeah. And it might be healing into life and it might be healing into death. That's not up to me. That's up to God or karma or the universe or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But almost everybody wants to heal. And yeah. even when they have only two or three days to live, it's not help me die well, but how can I be more whole in this moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that means that I don't want to feel anything right now. Yes. So how would you like to die? I would like I would like to think, I mean, who knows, that I want to die as consciously as I possibly can, as awake as I possibly can. And um, I hope that I prepare my family enough to not having to medicate me so they can tolerate their pain, yeah. which is something that I've seen, unfortunately, in the hospital quite a lot, that the patient themselves, they're okay, but their relatives are not. And so we are kind of speeding up the process or medicating the patient, but what we're actually doing is we're... And again, like maybe that's also a compassionate thing to do, make it easier on the relatives. Yeah, that's opening a whole can of worms. I don't know if we want to keep going much longer. <laughs> but I mean, to me, I, I've been teaching about compassion for three or four decades. And uh, often to me, compassion is not being nice. Often compassion is really uh, being honest and straightforward. But one can use truth as a weapon just as well. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, but to me, there's, there's a, an often there's a misunderstanding between compassionate action and kindness. Compassionate action is often kind. Yeah. 
And in fact, the Dalai Lama says, my my religion is kindness. And he's supposedly the incarnation of Chinrezi, the, mm-hmm. the embodiment of yes. compassion. Yeah. But if you're a parent, which I know you are, and I am, if you raise a child without ever saying no, you're going to raise a monster, right? Mm-hmm. That, that the, the compassionate action sometimes is saying, no, you can't do that, right? Uh, so uh, that's a whole other podcast for another day, probably. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, my big takeaway is that in my practice is that for many people, the way they learn about compassion is through their relationship with physical pain, Mm -hmm. the pain in their own bodies, Mm -hmm. and that they can begin to have a softer, more expansive, connected relationship with what they're feeling rather than seeing pain as the enemy, pain as a problem. That's something we have to armor ourselves against. And I would guess that that is essentially what you're saying too. Yes, absolutely. And, and as you're saying that, I, I'm thinking of the line of the, the beautiful poem by Naomi Shiab, Near Kindness, yeah. where she says, like, only once you see sorrow, like as the one deepest thing, you see kindness as the other deepest thing. And then you see the size of the cloth. You mm. start to see the thread. And I, I just love that image of say like, yeah, you, if, when you start to see the size of the cloth of sorrow, then your heart softens. You see like, oh, that's the human condition. And we're here to help each other carry that or be with each other um, as we're, yeah, walking this weird thing we call life yeah together together yeah walking each other home to you somebody once said <laughs> yeah somebody once said exactly <laughs> <laughs> thank you so very much it's really been a pleasure it's wonderful thank you so much it's yeah. so good to meet you i really uh honor the work you're doing and uh thank you for being here thank you so much dale thanks This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash now.